Amen. Can you just thank him one more time? Wasn't that incredible? Oh, my goodness. Wow, wow, wow. So they're going to be here at the end of the service, and then also afterwards they have some t-shirts and stuff available out there in the main commons, and absolutely want you all to check that out. My daughter and I picked up t-shirts earlier this weekend with Eight Days of Hope, and just want to say one more time, Steve, Charmaine, all of y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. We love you. We love Eight Days of Hope. And uh, Lord willing, as the plan comes together for service in Amory and stuff like that, Lord willing, you'll see a lot of us there. And uh, looking forward to that. For the rest of you all, it's like, well, what's Brother Matt doing? Uh, first week of December, first, week of, first service of the Advent, right? We're talking about alcohol, part number three. So we're going to close it out this week, okay? So I would invite you to go to two places in your Bible. First, go to Romans 14 and put your finger there. And then want to come back there. And then I want you to go to Proverbs 23, beginning in Romans 14. And we're going to come back to it. But the main scripture to begin with is going to be Proverbs 23. I'm going to say a few things uh, before we get to actually the reading of the scripture. So this has been a three-part message. So I realize that this, for many, has been a sensitive thing. For some, it's been not just sensitive, but it's been a hard thing to talk about because alcohol has played a part of your story, your testimony. And I, I, I get that. Listen, I, over the last... I, Began this series four weeks ago and then did the second message in that series and then we had a break last week with Pastor David Thompson brought the word it was an incredible and this week is part three I've had more feedback on any sermon series that I've ever preached from these messages right here and this is part three and I want to encourage you if today is going to be the first message that you're going to hear you're only getting part of the story there is no way for me to have dealt with what the Bible says about alcohol and what it means for us as Christians in one message. So if today is the first time you're hearing me speak on this, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to part one and part number two. Part one was caution, a word to abstainers, and then part two was caution, a word to partakers. And today is caution, a word to the wise. And I really mean that. Please don't take just today. It is a three-part series. And I really, if you did not experience those first two parts, I think it would be beneficial for you to go back and listen to those. So there are three primary positions that Christians hold when it comes to the subject of alcohol. This won't be on the screen, but this is just for you to know. There is the prohibitionist position. Prohibitionist position. What does that mean? That means that you don't drink it you think it's morally wrong and sinful, and you also say that it is morally wrong and sinful for others to drink. You believe that the Bible prohibits it, period. That the consumption of it is sin in all forms, and therefore it is the prohibitionist position. The second position is what is called the abstentionist. All right, these are technical terms, but just to put them out there, abstentionist is this. The abstentionist says, listen, I know the Bible doesn't condemn all consumption of alcohol, but for me, as an application of wisdom, you know what? I'm not going to drink it. It's just good for me not to do that because it may be because of family history. It may be because of personal experience, and it may be for some other reason. Just your conscience will not allow you to be okay with consumption. And you say, listen, I'm going to abstain. But here's what abstentionists, here's how they differ from the prohibitionist. Abstentionists think that it's not wrong to drink, but they personally don't. Therefore, they are not condemning other people or condemning the practice of the consumption of alcohol. And then there's the final position, what is the, which is the moderationist position. And the moderationist position is this, is that it understands that the Bible in varying places calls alcohol, wine, as it was designed to be drink, drunk by God to be a blessing and that it was used to celebrate what God has done and to reflect on the goodness of your creator. And it sees that alcohol consumed in moderation can be a blessing on a person's life. 
So those are the three positions. Never, not for me, and only in moderation. Those are the three. Never, not for me, and only in moderation. So just so you know, if you haven't figured it out yet, I fall in that middle category, which is the abstentionist, is that I know the Bible doesn't condemn all consumption of alcohol. I, I get that. And for, for me, though, it's just wise that I don't partake. When you look at my family history, it's been nothing, almost nothing but destructive. And it's, and it's so hard. So this series has been very difficult, not just for me personally. I've had to make a lot of phone calls, too, to family members and tell them I love them and I assure them. And this is in no way targeting people or anything like that because I love my family. But it, alcohol has been used as a destructive force, not a blessing in the Powell family. So there's where my convictions are coming from. But for today, this is the final message series on it, and it's the word to the wise. Let me say a few things, regardless of where you fall on this, okay? Here's what I want you to know. One of the things that I absolutely love, love, love about Steve Tiber, Steve, you have no idea how you have impacted my life, is that Eight Days of Hope and Steve Tiber, his family, they love Jesus, and they are known what they are for, not what they are against. I know Steve has convictions. I know he is against things that the Bible says are wrong, but you all are known what you're for, and that's for Jesus and for people. And that has literally been used to allow eight days of hope to literally change the world. And I believe this is what God wants for all of us, wants for every church, wants for Matt Powell, wants for you. He wants us to be known for what we're for. And first and foremost, that is to be Jesus and then our love for one another. Remember, it was Jesus who said this, and the whole world will know that you are my disciples because of your stance on alcohol. It never says that, y'all. It never says the whole world will know that you are my disciples because of your moral convictions on consumption. No. What does it say? The whole world will know that you are my disciples because of what? Your love for one another. That's what changes the world. This is literally what drove Jesus from heaven for God so loved the world. In verse 17, right after verse 16, that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. So my heart in this is this, is that we need to be humble and loving and wise in our beliefs about alcohol. I want you to, wherever you land on this spectrum of prohibitionist, abstentionist, moderationist, you may not land where I land. I'm cool with that. You know what? I'm willing to say I could be wrong. I'm totally okay with being wrong. I expect to stand before God one day and be adjusted in what I believe the Bible has taught, okay? And you know what? I'm willing to, on issues like this that aren't really salvation issues, I'm willing to say, listen, because of our love for one another, listen, let's celebrate what we agree on and celebrate Jesus and not get hung up on something that is clearly not a primary issue. But that doesn't mean we don't talk about it. And so that's why we've had this series. But in our conversation, be humble, loving, and wise in your beliefs about alcohol. Here's a couple things. First, there should be no disagreement regarding the sinfulness of being drunk. In these last three sermons, okay, you need to take away, because this first, the first three points of this sermon are really a, a tag onto the second message, which is a word to partakers. And here's what I want. Even though I, I personally do not partake, I know there are many in this room who do. By the way, if you're under 21, it is morally wrong for you to partake. Why? Because it's against the law. And so, no, if you are a young person, this is what God expects of you. You cannot consume. If you're an adult, it is legal in our country for you to consume alcohol. But just because it's legal does not mean that it's not dangerous. And here's what I am saying is that drunkenness and being dominated or controlled by alcohol is always considered sinful in Scripture. Like, for instance, pa Pastor Matt, like, you know, how often is it okay to be drunk if you're going to drink? Never. Never. And I'm not trying to be narrow. I am trying to, listen, you already know what I feel about it. I don't want it, and I, I think 
you're better without it, personally, okay? But I'm, I'm a recovering Pharisee, y'all, okay? There's not a 12-step program for that. If there were, I would be in it, okay? Um, but, but listen, I am looking at the Word of God, and there is no way around it. Drunkenness is sinful. Getting drunk, being drunk is sinful. It's like, no, 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 listen, you know, it's cool. Like, you know, just don't get drunk Monday through Friday, but once 5 o'clock on Friday... You got the weekend as long as you sober up for church. No, listen, that's not okay. It's not okay. Because the word of God says, do not be drunk with wine. And that means alcohol. Do not be drunk. So when is it acceptable to be, to, to, acceptable to be drunk? This is not me being, me being narrow. Never. Never. This is what the Bible says. Also, one of the things that I've heard through the years, I was like, yeah, but, you know, the Bible says you can drink it medicinally and stuff like that. And, Absolutely it does. Let's talk about that. The only time referenced in Scripture going beyond moderation is suggested medicinally is during end-of-life situations or drastic tragedies. Now, pause here for just a second. I'm going to read Proverbs in just a second. You say, wait, didn't Paul tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach? Yes, a little wine for his stomach. So that medicinally is different than this one. This is talking about going, on beyond, going beyond moderation. So, the only time referenced in Scripture going beyond moderation is suggested medicinally is during end-of-life situations, think hospice care, or drastic tragedies. Think of something very, very hard that someone has experienced. But here's what I want you to see. Both are temporary situations and are to be administered by another rather than self-prescribed. In light of modern medicine, we should view this advice very differently today. What am I referencing? Proverbs 31, 6-7. It says this, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. Think hospice care. And wine to those in bitter distress. Meaning, someone that something very, very tragic has happened. And they need some help to order to calm their nerves. Okay? It says, Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no, no more. Notice what it says. The instruction is you give, meaning it is administered. It is never to be self-prescribed. For instance, when the scripture says this, what it has in mind is a temporary situation in the ancient world where they did not have access to modern medicine. We're so blessed today to live in the world of modern medicine where when we encounter real problems like depression, real problems like PTSD and all kinds of things like that, Listen, there's antidepressants out there. There's medical professionals, people who have trained their whole life that understand these things that can help you with this. Like, we need to acknowledge times have changed just a little bit, okay? This is the ancient world when they were talking about doing this medicinally. Could you imagine going to a counselor, going to, to see a counselor today and saying, hey, listen, I'm just really struggling right now. Um, this happened, I lost my job. I'm thinking about, you know... Um, whether or not my marriage is going to make it, maybe I lost my child, something like that. Could you imagine the psychologist or psychiatrist or the counselor telling you this today? Well, man, that's so hard. I tell you what, for the next 60 days, why don't you just stay liquored up? That would not happen, okay? Why? Because we all acknowledge that's not how you handle that. So to try to use this verse, and I've seen it used over and over again, that it's okay to go beyond moderation because your heart's feeling sad, that's not the way it works. This is talking about something that is ministered by another in a temporary and very specific situation. Everything else in the Bible says, never get drunk. Ever, ever, ever. So that's what the Bible says. Also, the question then becomes, because now, here I am in my abstentionist point of view and perspective where it's like, okay, I, I don't partake, but I'm acknowledging the Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol. Go back and listen to my first two messages. But it condemns drunkenness. So what's, what's the line? What does it mean to be drunk? Well, here's what I want to say. Drunkenness is not a line, it's a picture. Drunkenness is not a line, it's a picture. So here's the problem. Like, for instance, uh, you say, I, I don't get drunk, I just get tipsy. Or I don't get drunk, you know, I'm just not what they are over there. Here's the dangerous thing when it's like, where is the line of have I had too much? Is because we all think 
well, I don't drink as much as that guy over there on the floor passed out, so I'm not drunk. What is the line? And I'm telling you, the Bible actually lays out what it means to be drunk or controlled by alcohol in Proverbs 23. And what I want to submit to you today, it's not a line at all. It's rather a picture. And see, here's, we all wanted to like draw lines and stuff like that. Some of you may know this about me. In my undergraduate degree, um, I had a lot of credit. I almost could double major. But for two and a half years, I was a art major. And as an art major, one of the classes that I had to take was basic design. And I loved it. I was a graphic design major for two and a half years. Loved that. Ended up majoring in something else. But short of a couple classes, I almost could double majored. But in basic design, you learn that there are five elements of art. And line is only one of them. So, for instance, if I were to ask a three-year-old somewhere and say, hey, draw me a picture of a man, what would they do? They would draw a circle, and they would put a line, and then they put a stick figure, basically. I mean, come on, let's be honest. If I were to ask most adults, hey, draw me a picture of a man, what are you going to do? You're going to draw a stick figure with lines and stuff like that, all right? Well, one of the things that you learn in art is that lines are actually a small part of art. Because in design, line is only one of five elements. It's line, shape, value, texture, color. All of them play a role in being able to make or see a picture. In fact, one of the things you learn as an artist as you draw portraits or paint portraits or do landscapes is you find out that line in almost all situations are some of the smallest parts of the picture. And that other things like value, shape, color, texture, especially values, which means light and dark, that is what allows us to see a picture. And that's what moves us beyond stick figures and smiley faces into making portraits. That's what moves us beyond the house that looks like a box and a triangle and being able to produce a, a beautiful painting of a home place or something like that. It's because you've embraced that the elements of art are more than just drawing lines. And when the Bible talks about drunkenness, it doesn't talk about lines. It doesn't talk about the percentage of blood, excuse me, the percentage of alcohol in your blood. It doesn't talk about how many drinks you've had. It paints a picture of what it looks like to have had too much. And this is the picture it paints. We're not drawing lines, we're painting pictures. Because what is the picture that God paints of wine and alcohol in the Bible? Psalm 104, we looked at it a few weeks ago. God made it to be a blessing. Therefore, any picture of alcoholic consumption that is not a blessing goes beyond what God has intended alcohol to be. So what does it mean to be drunk? It's to move beyond the picture of blessing into a picture of burden. And so here's what I want you to do today. Like this part right here, the word of God is for all of us, right? But especially if you're a partaker today, I implore you as your friend, be honest with yourself and be honest with God. You don't have to make an argument to me or anything like that, all right? I just let the word of God speak to your heart about this. So this is Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23, and this will come as verse number 29 through 35. It says this, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine. Notice what it says. It doesn't say those who drink. It says those who drink too much. Those who tarry long over wine, those who try, go to try mixed wine. Don't look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. So here's the picture of what it means to overconsume. You say, well, where's the line? There is no line. It's a picture. So now here's what I want you to do. I want each of you to be honest with yourself. 
If you don't hear anything else from Matt Powell, there's a couple things that I want you to hear. Number one is this. The worst person that you can lie to is not God, because God already knows the truth. It's not me, because how would I ever know? The worst person that you and I can lie to is ourselves. Because when you lie to yourself, what happens? You believe your own lies. So as you and I face the word of God today and see the holy word of God as a mirror, just say right now, before I even read this, God, help me be honest about what I'm about to hear. Help me be honest about what I'm about to hear. So first, drunkenness is not a line, it's a picture. What does that mean? Is if your consumption is producing otherwise avoidable troubles, that means you've, you've crossed the line. You're drinking too much. You're moving beyond blessing and pushing into burden. Look down in verse 29. What does it say? Who has woe? Who has sorrow? What does this mean? This means that if your alcoholic consumption, whatever it is, doesn't matter what kind of beverage it is, whether it's high in content, low in content, doesn't matter, is if your consumption is producing otherwise avoidable troubles, you've violated the picture of blessing. If, if there is trouble in your life that can only be explained because of your consumption, that means you're drinking too much. You've violated the picture of blessing. Here's another one, that your consumption is producing strife with other people. Look down in verse 29. It says, who has strife? Think of the word stress here. Are you under stress because of your consumption? Does it put stress on your wife? Does she have to, to worry? Does she get nervous when you pick it up? Do your kids go to their room? Does your husband start to get a little uneasy when you pick it up? What's that doing? That means because of something, there's stress being added to your life. And if that's happening, here's what this means. You violated the picture of blessing. It's not about a line. It has nothing to do with a line. You violated the picture of blessing. And it's no longer blessing. It's a stress. So you've gone too far with it. Here's another one. Your consumption is causing complaints about you from other people. Look down in verse 29. It says, who has complaining? Now, here's what I want to differentiate. Like, when we hear this, we think, oh, but Matt, I'm a moderationist. And like, you don't know my mama. You don't know my daddy. You don't know my grandmama. They're like, if I'm a moderationist, and you know, you said that far category over here is prohibitionist. They're somewhere way over there to the far side of prohibitionism. And they judge me all the time. And they're on me all the time. And I just, it's wrong for them to judge me. And I feel judged and all these things and stuff like that. Listen, I'm not talking about complaining about a biblical picture. I'm talking about complaints about your behavior. This is what, this is how we be honest with ourselves. Let's not make this a theological biblical argument about alcohol. This is about the influence of alcohol in your life. Do people complain about how you act when you drink? If so, you're drinking too much. This is what the Word of God says. If people have to adjust their lives to accommodate your drinking because you're causing strife, and they, if they're honest, they complain. And let's just be frank. Some of them don't even know how to complain. Because they don't even know how to bring it up. Because every time they bring it up, it's, oh, no, I don't have a problem. Listen, this is one more thing. True freedom is not being able to say yes to something. It's being able to say no. Because listen, anything that you cannot say no to controls you. Anything that I cannot say no to controls me. True freedom is not being able to do what I want. It's being able to say no, whatever that is. I'm not going to have another drink, or I'm not going to drink at all, or I'm not going to do this, or you know what? I'm not going to drink for this season of my life. If you can't say those things, you know what it means? It's controlling you. And you think, I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. I've been liberated. Friend, you are shackled to the wall and don't even know it. If you can't say no, you are being controlled. And if people are complaining... Because of what this is creating in your life, this means you've had too much. Here's another one. Your consumption is causing self-harm. 
Your consumption is causing self-harm. Like, for instance, you ever drink, and then after a while, you like look down, and there's like bruises and marks on your arm or your legs and stuff like that, and you're like, dude, that's hilarious. I like cut my arm off. Or I got this bruise. I don't even know what's going on here. And everybody laughs because they've had too much to drink too. And that's when that's funny. But in the normal sober world, when people legitimately get wounded, people don't laugh. People don't laugh. Because it's not funny when people get hurt. And if you're laughing at self-harm, that means something has happened to you up here because this substance has altered your perception. And if you're finding like, wow, I don't even know where this stuff is coming from on me, that means you've had too much to drink, according to the Bible. Here's another one. Your consumption leads to bloodshot eyes. You're like, you are so meddling in my life right now. Are you really saying you're looking in my eyes when you see me? No, I don't. And listen, if you have bloodshot eyes, maybe I don't. uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there that has a condition that their eyes are always bloodshot. We should make no assumptions about people. This is not for material. This part of the sermon is not to give you material to judge your neighbor. This is personal. And the scripture says in verse 29, who has redness of eyes? Are your eyes red after drinking? It's because you've had too much. That's what the word of God says, okay? Also, not, not only this, your consumption alters your visual perception. Look in verse number 33. It says, your eyes will see strange things. Are you laughing at stuff that only you see and nobody else sees? You've had too much. You've violated the picture of blessing. Now you've gone beyond and now it's a burden on your life and others. Here's another one. Your consumption causes you to say perverse and regrettable things. What does that mean? Friends, when you drink too much, you stay stuff you regret. Like rarely... Rarely does somebody get absolutely hammered and passed out or to the point of passing out and says, listen, I've just been hit by God. I'm a child of the most high God and the most high God. That's typically not what they say. You know, I'm just going to quote John chapter 3 right now. Or you go to your kids and say, I just wanted you, I love you. Tell your wife, I love you. Tell your husband, I love No, your filter is loosed. So you say words and you say things that you otherwise wouldn't say. One of the first counseling appointments I ever had in ministry. This has been, gosh, over a decade ago. There was a couple that came to see me, and the problem was the gentleman had no idea what he was saying to his wife when he was drunk. But his wife couldn't unhear what she was hearing. And the difficulty was he didn't know what he said. Like, are you saying things that you regret? You've had too much. Also, here's another thing. That consumption prevents proper posture and balance. Verse 34, you'll be like someone who's a mast on a sea, like walking a straight line, thinking that, stuff like that. And here's the big thing. Here's the big thing. That you have crossed a line and that alcohol is an improper place in your life if this is true. Look at verse 35. That when you awake, you say, I must have another drink. That when you sober up, the first thing, it's like, man... I need something. I need something. You say, listen, Matt, alcohol doesn't control my life. I'm a true moderationist. I can quit any time. Could you? Like if you just, you could set it down for six months, a year, two years if somebody asks you to. Could you say no? I can't answer that for you. I'm asking you to be honest with yourself. And if you can't say no to it, it's controlling you. And if it's controlling you, has improper place in your life. I'm just asking y'all, let's all be honest with the scripture. Friends, principle number three, in all but a few instances, drinking is a wisdom issue, not a moral one. Please hear me say again, it is not a sin to consume or drink alcohol. Please go back and listen to my first two messages. It is not a sin to consume it and enjoy the blessing of this gift that God has created, which is called wine, alcohol in the scripture. Friends, the Bible also does not draw lines on the kinds of drinks or the percentage of alcohol, the ABV. We talked about it in message two. The issue is always do not be, do not overconsume into drunkenness. In message number two, please go back and listen to it. I made a big deal about saying 
The Bible doesn't say anything about the consumption of liquor. So to use the verses in the Bible to say it's okay to drink liquor is just being completely dishonest with yourself because liquor was not invented until hundreds of years after the Bible. So to say, because the Bible says it's okay to consume alcohol, that ipso facto, that means that it's okay to drink liquor. You can't say that because the Bible doesn't talk about liquor. But the flip side is also true. And this is what I didn't say in the last message. I cannot tell you, you know what? It's a sin for you to drink liquor because the Bible doesn't talk about liquor. It's a sin for you to mix a drink with a, a distilled spirit or something. I can't say that. The Bible literally doesn't talk about it. So I cannot tell you that something is wrong if the Bible does not address it. It's, it swings both ways, y'all. You can't use the Bible to say it's okay to drink liquor, and you can't use the Bible to say it's a sin to drink liquor. I get it, but I'm going to stand by what I said in the last message. If the Bible and all of the warnings about alcohol were there on fermented drinks alone, drinks that likely ranged between 5 and 8% ABV, how much more would the Bible warn us today in light of modern distillation? Again, it's a wisdom issue. It's not a moral one. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to consume. I'm not going to say that either. And let me tell you, I have said that through a great portion of my life. And again, I'm a recovering Pharisee. But listen, I have to stand on the Bible. The Bible. Also, here's another thing. Every consumer of alcohol must deal with the real possibility of falling into sin through overconsumption or being trapped in addiction especially in light of modern distillation. It's just reality. One in 10 social drinkers, statistics tell us, turn into an alcoholic. You say, but not me. Praise God. But it's still there. Those numbers mean something, and we're foolish to ignore it. It's foolish for me to use those statistics and judge you for consuming. It's also foolish for you to ignore the warnings in the Bible and the statistics that we know about alcoholism and assume that there's no risk that you're running. Just be honest with yourself for the sake of yourself, for the sake of those who love you. Just be honest. Also, here's another thing. No abstainer will ever become drunk or fall into alcoholic addiction. You're like, uh, duh, <laughs> right? No abstainer will ever become drunk or fall into alcoholic addiction. Now, brothers and sisters, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that you don't play a risky game if you abstain. Jesus took wine that had alcohol in it. I abstain. That means my position is more conservative than Jesus' position himself. So anywhere I'm more conservative than Jesus, that's really risky for me. Because I can quickly slip into sin and become prideful and arrogant and judgmental. And listen, Jesus had a whole lot more to say to the Pharisees than he ever said to those who struggled with alcohol. So this word is for me, too. But regarding alcoholism, regarding the sin of drunkenness, regarding of the power of addiction, if you abstain, it will never be a problem in your life. Also, ignoring the wisdom of those who care deeply about you is simply foolish. Listen, I know, I know that some of us, nearly all of us, especially in the South, have somebody, some grandma, some mom, some parent somewhere that is like hardcore prohibitionist. And in fact, you've actually sent them part one of this series. Like, Grandma, I need you to listen to this. My preacher says it's okay. All right, I did not say that. You got to listen to the whole thing. All right. listen to your family. Nobody knows you like your mom and daddy. Nobody knows you like your grandparents. And I'm assuming there are some things that mom and dad are in the picture. Some of you have been hurt deeply because mom and dad haven't been there. And my heart goes out to you. But listen to people who care about you. They may be abstainers and you can handle moderation. And they may say things like, hey, you need to be careful. Don't despise someone who cares about you giving you a warning. That's love. That they're willing to go to that weird place of saying, hey, I love you, but be careful. Don't despise that. That is a gift, for, even if they're wrong, that's a gift of God that you have someone that close enough to you 
that they love you enough to just broach that space of awkwardness and say, hey, be careful. Don't despise that. You're foolish too. Principle number four. Principle number four, and I'm not going to have time to read Romans 14 in its entirety to you. So I'm going to read verses uh, probably one through five, and then I'll touch on another one here, but go to Romans, and then I want you to read this on your own time. But the scripture contains instructions for Christians who believe differently, belonging to the same church. You're like, so are we going to be the, you know, the abstaining church? Absolutely not. Are we going to be the partaking church? Absolutely not. We want to be the church of Jesus. We want to be the church of Jesus. And that means church needs to be a safe place for where people who abstain can feel love and where people who partake feel love and that those who have a problem can feel love and aren't judged and we help them. So Paul envisions a church where there are different people believing different things about issues like this. In Romans 14, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For, this is big, God has welcomed him in whom the Son is set free. Man, careful who you judge. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I'm going to stop right there for the sake of time. So on your own time, when you look at this in Romans 14, you need to understand who he's talking about. He has a church filled with Jews and Gentiles, Jews that did not eat meat, and some of them, in certain occasions, did not drink certain kinds of wine. And you had Gentiles that were totally okay with eating meat. So imagine church. They're there at the Church of Rome, and the Gentiles are there. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but the Jews have been exiled for a long time, and Jews are starting to trickle back to church. And now the Gentiles are running the church, and they're having a fellowship meal. And they're like, hey, man, you want some bacon with that gravy? And it's like... Uh, I'm not comfortable. I keep a kosher table. I've been Jewish my whole life. And the Gentile was like, haven't you read the book of Acts? Peter saw the sheep, man. Eat what you want. Bring on the bacon. And Paul is saying, that's not love. And here's what he says. The weaker person is the one who feels like they are restricted by what they can eat and not eat. And here's where I struggle, right? Because is it a mistainer, okay? See, the prohibitionist party always believed they were the strong party. We got the moral conviction. God is the strong party here, and God doesn't believe in this stuff. Actually, Paul calls that the weak party. Why are the abstainers the weak ones? Because they haven't gotten over their man-made rules and just accepted the freedom that is in Christ. Oh, I'm going to have to start my resume up. i got to... I know I've offended somebody, but I don't take it back. It's what the Bible says. Those who abstain are called the weaker brother here because they have not applied freedom in Christ as the Bible teaches to their everyday theology. And for that, they're called weak. And the strong are this. The strong are those who understand partaking is not sinful. The strong are not the partakers. The stronger those who understand we're free in Christ and we are not bound by these Old Testament ceremonial laws anymore. So the strong is not those who choose to drink. It's those who have come to the fullness of understanding of freedom in Christ means it's not what comes out of them, not what is put into a man which makes him unclean. It's what comes out. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. So, the weak are those who, because of previous religious tradition, believe drinking as a sin. So here's a couple things real quick. What are the strong commanded to do? They're to welcome the weaker, weaker brother. He's telling these Gentiles, you welcome your Jewish brother in. Don't look down on them because they're an abstainer. Don't look down on them. Also, notice in verse number two, when he says, or verse one really, but don't quarrel over opinions. 
Church is not the place to settle this argument. Actually, church is not a place for argument, period. It's a place for teaching and correction, but not argument. Don't argue over opinions about alcohol with a weaker brother. Listen, Jesus died for your abstaining friends, and he loves them, and they're trying to please God with their lives. Don't argue with them over whether or not it's okay to drink. Just let them love Jesus and you love them. Also, don't despise an abstainer. It's literally don't look down on them thinking you're better. Well, I understand the Bible more than they do. I understand what liberty is more than they do. Yeah, and that's a dangerous place when you realize that. Don't despise an abstainer. Also, don't judge your weaker brothers and sisters. Only God knows their heart. This is verse 13. Look down in verse 13. Let us therefore not pass judgment on one another any longer. Also, here's the big one. Don't cause your weaker brother to stumble over alcohol. Here's what this means. Here's what it means to stumble. This means don't do anything that will cause them to stumble into sin over this. And here's what it means by that. Because remember first message. The first message was Jesus was consuming alcohol and he knew the Pharisees were judging him and calling him a drunkard because they saw him drinking publicly at parties. And he didn't stop drinking, even though he knew it offended them. That's not what stumbling means. Stumbling is out of love for your Christian brother. Think about it in this way. If I know that you're a recovering person when it comes to alcohol, and I have you over for Monday night football, and I'm like, hey, here, have a couple with me. We're not going to get drunk, but have a couple with me. What am I doing? I'm, I'm introducing you to a world of hurt. Why am I not loving you enough to respect your abstinence? Also, here's another thing. What if I've grown up in a place where, you know what, I know what the Bible says, I get it, but my conscience is just not, it is not well with my soul to drink. The Bible says if I pressure, this is what it means to make a weaker brother stumble, if I pressure somebody to do something that their conscience is not okay with, I'm sinning. That's what you, it's respecting each other, it's loving each other, the, but this is not talking about like, well, what if I go out and like I'm seen in public and I'm, you know, was not drunk, but I was like having a glass of wine with my wife at the dinner table and there's somebody over there that's like, hmm, I can't believe so-and-so was doing that. Can't be-. No, listen, you, that's a whole different message. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you think that's your moral duty to judge people in that way. There's a whole nother message series for that. But not causing your brother to stumble means this. I don't want what I'm doing freely to cause my brother, brother to stumble into sin and leave the faith. But then also here, y'all listen to this, the weak are instructed to do stuff too. The people who abstain and the people whose consciences are bothered by partaking, notice what it says. Don't judge your partaking brothers and sisters. Look in verse number three. Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This is a big deal, all right? Because I'm going to be honest, in all of my life, I have never seen or heard a partaker say something like this. You know what? I was at Harvey's this week, and I saw so-and-so there with his wife, and it was, they weren't drinking. Can you believe that? Partakers don't talk this way. All right? But on the flip side, I have heard more than just one occasion where abstainers were, I was at Harvey's and <laughs> guess what I saw? Can you believe it? The Bible says if you do that, you're wrong. And by the way, if the Bible commanded people who consume to not consume anywhere so it wouldn't offend you, then why is it telling you not to judge them? Because it's not a sin to consume. It's just a sin to push it on somebody else. And abstainers, y'all listen to me. This is my camp. We got to stop judging people. Because people who really need help will never darken our door. Also, 
Here's the other thing. This is hard. This may have to, like I said, activate the resume. Realize accommodations. The reason that this is an issue, the accommodations are being made because of incomplete understanding of the weaker brother or sister. The instructions in Romans 14 is telling the strong, take care of your weaker brothers. The implied reference is to the weaker brothers. Y'all grow up a little bit, all right? Because the Bible doesn't say what you says it says. And you need to embrace freedom in Christ and quit judging your brothers and sisters. It's time to grow up. I didn't say it. I'm just the messenger. It's what God says. Finally, the role of the strong is to patiently endure the weak and to help them become strong in understanding of freedom in Christ. What do I mean by that? The goal here is not to get somebody to join you at the bar or to join you in your drinking. The goal is to allow people to understand exactly what was being sung about earlier by Ben, that those who are free are free and whom God has set free, healed, delivered. Who you are in him is who you are. The issue is not alcohol. The issue is freedom in Christ. That's what the weak, strong help the weak with. And people that don't understand fully and haven't fleshed out what it means that Jesus truly does love them to the uttermost, it is your job as the strong to come around them and be patient with them. I'll tell a personal story really fast. And then a final statement, I'll be done. Next week is all music, y'all. And then the week after that, I promise on the word of God, God help me preach a 25-minute sermon. Okay, there we go. In 2018, my son Judah died. Um, Steve, y'all remember that? My son literally dropped dead in their front yard. And he left behind two big sisters and one little sister and also two little siblings that he would not meet in this life. And one of the hardest things for me about all of that tragedy is losing the big brother for my children. Because Judah had such a tender heart as he cared for Ainsley. Even as a little boy, he would go and put her passy back in. He would hold her head, rub her head. And he was a tough boy too, don't get me wrong. But he was so tender towards his sisters. And one of the ugliest things about his death was that my daughters lost their big brother. And my son that I now have lost their big brother. And one of the things that's been my beef with what God has allowed in my life is why, God, do my children have to miss out on that blessing of a big brother? So my daughter's 16 and a half. She's sitting over there. Total sweetheart. We've got a 13-year-old as well. And one of the things, when you have teenage daughters, this is, this is, this is how it works. Uh, boys just start showing up at your house. Um, it started happening a few years ago and they would just like show up and I knew they weren't coming to see the preacher for a Bible study um, they just started showing up and so there and I asked this young man's permission he's here today actually um, he's dating my daughter he's been in a relationship with her going on a year now and his name is Slade he's sitting right over there and I've already told him this in person and I asked him if I could say this. Ashlyn, I asked him, okay. <laughs> Slade um, is dating my daughter, and it's a big deal to come to my house. Why? Because to come to my house, you have to put up with the circus, which is my house. Because I got a bunch of kids. My youngest is three years old, and he thinks he's a dinosaur. Um, And when Slade comes to our house, he's there for one reason, y'all. He's there to see my daughter. It bothers me, Slade. 
but he's there to see my daughter. But I have observed this over and over again. When those little people run in the room, he will pause what he is doing with Ashlyn and pick them up off the ground. He will sit and talk with them. He will watch Disney movies with them. Last week, we went to Ashland's soccer game and Slade rode with us so we could go watch Ashland. And as we're getting kids out of the car, he's helping them down. And of course, they all want to hold Slade's hand and he lets them. And I am watching this thinking that my children's big brother was gone forever. Now, God alone knows, Slade, if you'll stick around. But I love you. And the way you have so tenderly loved my whole family is the fastest way to my daddy heart. Because you, when you love my little ones, you love me. Friends, church is supposed to be a family. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about Jesus and our brothers and sisters for whom he gave everything. Being in the strong party is never supposed to be a burden. And when you see people loving despite their convictions, it means that God is in the place. We are to be known by one thing, our love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be here before you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to hear Ben today. Lord, I thank you for the testimony that he is standing in front of us. And Lord, I thank you for this series. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves about alcohol, yes. But first and foremost, be honest with ourselves about Jesus and how much he loves us how much he stands ready to heal us in our struggles and Lord how much he wants and delights when we don't stab one another and argue with one another but we love and embrace each other despite opinions on issues like this Lord make us a church of love it's in Christ's name I pray amen and amen